sports world's answer to the depression is what the Literary Digest called the Los Angeles Games, and it certainly did have a tinge of glamour not seen in the preceding ones. It began a new era of Olympic broadcast, with millions now able to listen to their nation's triumphs and defeats and wirelesses and radios across the globe. A humble precursor to this, the ex-Olympopod. to be joined this Olympopod by and Pierre de Coubertin would be absolutely spinning in his grave not one but two fantastic ladies Jill Jarras and Alison Brown of the amazing Keep the Flame Alive podcast I don't think I can really call it a rival Olympic podcast because we're really just part of this universal secret fraternity of Olympopods casts I would definitely not call it a rival I would say you know you run more the 400 meters and we'll do the marathon. You know, it's sisters. Are you on strychnine? I possibly could be. <laughs> and I do often stop for champagne. Yeah, I was I was thinking possibly myself and Chris could be a bit of an 800 meters, which there could be potential that like maybe I was collapsing at the end. I'm not sure. <laughs> or the steeplechase. I know how you love the steeplechase. Yeah, I do love the steeplechase. But two Americans for the return to the American continent for the olympics and los angeles it, it was okay compared to um our last outing oh yeah yeah exactly <laughs> well i mean like it, this is just the the foreshadowing of los angeles being the only host city to or only city to bid for the first like the time of like pretty much every time la has gotten the olympics they've been the only choice <laughs> And they've been the choice to pull the Olympics out from under its uh, mires, its budgetary issues, so to speak. And and who wouldn't want to be in California during a depression? And it's not like Los Angeles in 1932 was the Los Angeles of today. Yeah. No. This little backwater of a nothing city at the time. You know, I bet a lot of people, and, and I know we re- I read this earlier, that a lot of the Europeans didn't know where it was. Yeah, and I think they like they build it as a suburb of Hollywood. To, so so people would understand where it was. <laughs> That's how we think of it now anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that where they filmed the hills? <laughs> it's funny because in each of the Los Angeles Olympics, you know, 32, 84 and now 2028, it's like Los Angeles is experiencing, you know, at first a birth and then a rebirth. And so both the city and the Olympics kind of, as Jill was alluding to, kind of come out from under each time. So this will be interesting. And both of you guys are on the East Coast, right? Yes. Yes. So I I was reading that there was this huge divide, which perhaps continues to this day, of the athletics organisations fighting between the East Coast and the West Coast. Kind of like there was a snobbery that, you know, most of the athletes were based on the East Coast and there was just this kind of thing of like going to California. It's like a rap battle in the 1930s. (laughs) Right. And you'll find people who are West Coast, it's Best Coast. Actually, even though I'm on the Eastern time zone, I'm officially in the Midwest. So nobody really cares about us, even though we produce a lot of really great athletes. Well, when we read The Boys in the Boat, which would then go to 36, that was kind of a, a theme of that book was they were a West Coast rowing team and all the teams from the Ivy League East Coast was like, who are these boys and what are they doing? So yeah, that absolutely still continues. Though, given what's happened the past elections, the coasts have sort of come together to hate everybody in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> or vice versa. Everybody yeah, or vice versa. So, but yes, there's definitely, the, definitely with the athletic world, the idea that what California athletes do and what East Coast athletes do are, are very different. Yeah. And it wasn't like you had all these trans, uh, these transcontinental flights at the time. So it wasn't like people from New York were jetting off to LA all the time. So it was just this weird thing that was going to fall into the ocean. Yeah. And they, like, they did really um, try and get all of the uh, ferry companies and liners to try and reduce the prices as much as possible just to get people to the event because it was a depression like th- this was not you know the ideal time to be hosting an olympics but um 
yeah, got done. It just goes to show that it doesn't matter. You can have pandemics, global, global um depressions, and the games still go on. Uh, nor was it a time to be traveling to the event either. I mean, that's <laughs> I think that's even a bigger issue in this case because it seems like LA did a very good job of using current, uh, or I say current at the time, venues. I think the uh, swimming uh, arena was the only thing that was built brand new. The Coliseum was built in the 20s, uh, I think with an idea towards bidding for the Olympics. But overall, it was done fairly fairly on the cheap, despite the fact that there was a whole Olympic village being built, which once again is being claimed to be the first Olympic village. I feel like for the last five Olympics, we've been saying that the Olympic village is being said for the first time. How many times have we had the first one? goes on it goes like i even read that rome was the first olympic village okay but we, there was definitely one at the intercalation wasn't there yes i think that was the first time we heard that there was an olympic village but ruth the intercalated games didn't exist so you know <sighs> that's why it can't be the first and there were no girls allowed in the olympic village no. Yeah. They put all the ladies up in, in some downtown hotel because there were so few of them. They didn't need a whole village, of course. But it was like the I hate girls treehouse club where <laughs> yes. girls had cooties. <laughs> what was that about? But so, yeah, you said that yeah, there weren't that many ladies because we we've been talking about it the last couple of Olympopods that, you know, they started... The ladies started appearing and they started, you know, bringing in big uh, crowds. But there was only about half the number of women in L.A. as in Amsterdam the four years previously. The participation had gone down. There were fewer countries, there were fewer athletes. Again, because we were talking about because of the depression, there were some countries that just could not afford to send people. And then even American athletes couldn't afford to go. I was going to say, did you hear about the Brazilian team? Yes. I think my favorite story of this whole thing. Jill, go for it. Brazil wanted to send a delegation. They couldn't afford, the the country just couldn't afford to send them. And so they said, well, we'll put you on a boat with a whole bunch of coffee and you sell the coffee along the way and then we'll pay for your journey there. Well, nobody wanted coffee because they couldn't afford it. So, (laughs) So they got to the Panama Canal and they didn't have enough money to get through the canal, except for the ship had a gun on it. And the, the canal officials said, well, it's it's got a gun, so it's a battleship and battleships go through for free. So they they end up getting to L.A. and they only made like they had to pay money to get off the boat. They had twenty four dollars. Right. They So they can only take like twenty four people. <laughs> Who do you decide that gets to go to the games? And wasn't there a similar story with the Cuban team and the sugar? I read a story where the Cuban team was given the same idea where they were given sugar and they made it as far as Texas and nobody wanted to buy the sugar. So they got put back on the boat and sent home and there was no Cuban team in LA 32 because nobody wanted their sugar. Oh, no. All right. So we were focusing on the, well, I was going to say, let's say the success story, the relative success story of the Brazilians here, but uh, not the uh, not the Cubans. I didn't know about that. The Brazil story is quite funny. And as you said, they only had $24 with them and they had to pay some kind of import tax to actually get off the boat for each person that was going to compete. There were 69 in the delegation, so they really had to cut the number down quite a bit. They had... I heard somewhere on a uh, short podcast episode, it was called Mass for Shut-Ins, that the consul in San Francisco had uh, sent someone down to LA with uh, $50 worth of Brazilian money. However, on his journey down, it became so devalued that it was basically worth nothing. So <laughs> he had, no, he didn't have enough to to get the people off the the boat. So they had to choose twenty four uh, of the delegation to actually get off and try to compete. While the rest of the people in the delegation went on the freight up to Canada to continue to try to sell the coffee. Uh, they didn't do very well, though, those who actually got off the freight. There was one guy who finished in sixth place in the pole vault, which was their best result. But their most famous incident happened in the water polo. And I think Ruth wants to pick up on that one. We've had some really great riots 
in the last few Olympopods. And there was only one that I can that I find any evidence for in this one. I'm sure there are more riots. There's always a good riot at the Olympics. But yeah, it was during the match between Brazil and Germany, which the Europeans won 7-3. Germany had four fouls calls, uh, called against them and Brazil had 40. Which, I mean, like when you watch an Olympic water polo, match that's that seems 40 does seem standard four does seem a bit bit short doesn't seem like they were really playing if they only got four fouls goals against them yeah the brazilian fans were not impressed and they charged belia komiadi the hungarian referee and the police had to be called i think they got banned from international competition for a while afterwards but this is what water polo is it's like that's like saying that like the horses and the dressage are too prancy like i mean this is what like what do you want from a water polo match? Isn't there a rule in water polo that you can only drown someone for three seconds? I don't know. There's a lot of ripping <laughs> off of bathing suits that happen. Could lead to a riot, depending on what's underneath. <laughs> I always worry uh, about these stories where they have to save all their money to get... What? How do they get home? Ah, well, I have the answer to that. Oh, good. Because I'm worried now about these poor 24 Brazilians stranded in Los Angeles. <laughs> Yeah, so the the freight did go up to the the northwest and to Canada to continue to try and sell the coffee, which nobody wanted or nobody could afford. It eventually came back, picked up the 24 athletes and went back down to Rio. Now, most of these Olympic athletes were based in Sao Paulo, where the uh, Olympic center was at the time. And when they arrived in Brazil, it was the middle of a revolution. And so they were kind of stuck. And what would have been a one-day train journey back to Sao Paulo turned into a nine-day-long escapade, which involved hitchhiking, camping outside, and eventually making their way back to Sao Paulo. So they did get a home, but it was a brutal journey, and nobody died. It didn't make me feel any better. <laughs> Sorry. Just... <laughs> But clearly the Brazilians and the Cubans should have gotten together because then if they had brought coffee and sugar, yeah, they both would have sold better, you know, and maybe brought up some of those Midwestern milk people. And someone else could have brought like pumpkin spice, you know, and <laughs> we, we could have had pumpkin sp- spice lattes like a hundred years ago and it would have mm-hmm. been amazing. That's exactly what you want in the middle of the summer in LA, right? Yeah. Well, there's ice. There was ice, Chris. All right, fine. Yeah, Russia could have brought the ice. Teamwork. We have been talking about how there was this kind of progression towards a lot more women coming in. But Count Henri de Ballier-Latour took over the role of permanent IOC president following Pierre de Coubertin's retirement. In 1929, Balien Latour floated the idea of just scrapping all the women's sports in an effort to streamline the Olympic programme. But luckily, the president of the AOA, Avery Brundage, seems to have stepped in after being very impressed by a ladies' demonstration at the 1930 Olympic Congress in Berlin. I know that you, Alison, and you, Jill, have strong opinions on Brundage. And certainly he, ma- he, certainly he made subsequent comments at these games along the lines of, you know, the ancient Greeks kept women out of their athletic games. They wouldn't even let them on the sidelines. I'm not so sure, but they were right. And he seems to have been particularly distrustful of European uh, female athletes who he suspected were just men in disguise. So uh, who wants to take it up, Alison or Jill? Oh, oh, this is all yeah. me. We know how much how I feel about Avery Brundage. Give us some background because this is the first time we're hearing about him on the podcast. Okay, so Avery Brundage was very involved in the development of the Olympic movement, especially in the United States, subsequently became president of the IOC from 1952 to 1972. And he had a lot of opinions on how the Olympic movement should be run. Very, very attached to amateurism. And basically, if anybody handed the athlete a free cookie, he would kick them out as being professionals. And he wasn't the nicest person in real life either. There was a whole other family that he tucked away in Los Angeles. And, you know, I know you have your your slime of the week. He's like the slime of the century. (laughs) 
just 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 FYI, we're going to Berlin next Olympic Pod, so <laughs> <laughs> You'll have you'll have fun with Avery Brundage in Berlin. I'm just saying he may not have been the worst person in Berlin. <laughs> Got some competition, I would. <laughs> well, just the fact that the Berlin Games happened, mm. you can thank Avery Brundage. Our hero of the last couple of Olympiads, um, Pablo Nurmi, he he was one of the victims of uh, Brundage. Yeah, again, because you, if an God forbid, an athlete earn a dime. Never mind in athletics itself, you know, if they did a commercial of some kind, if they made an appearance, not being paid to be an athlete, just being paid because they were famous, Brundage would say, you're out. And Nermi lost his eligibility because of appearance fees. But it's like, how are these guys supposed to eat? You know, Avery Brundage had this image of the gentleman athlete. Like basically, unless you were independently wealthy, you could, as he was, you couldn't do this. Yes. And he was very like, he he carried on the Pierre de Coubertin, no girls allowed in the clubhouse. Um, he was not a fan. He definitely worried that uteruses were just going to be falling out all over the track. But he well, did love the ladies. Okay. Just in a different way. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so I think he was okay with, with very feminine-ish thing. So as long as a female athlete was very beautiful and feminine and um, delicate, Mm. but God forbid they were strong and athletic and then they were men in drag. But the one good thing he did do that Chris will like is because of this love of amateurism, he was the one who scrapped the art competition in 1954. Wait, I don't. I don't hate the art competition. Ah. I just. I just. I don't, I just <laughs> you have a reasonable I, skepticism. I had a skepticism of the not awarding of random medals. Yeah, I did try and look this up, and there wasn't a very like satisfactory answer, especially because in all of the different categories, sometimes we see that there's only a silver or a bronze or just like not awarded at all. And um, I saw one explanation, which was that like. Because music had to be submitted just as sheet music, so nobody ever heard it. They were just judging it by looking at the sheet music, that this was one of the reasons why there were so few actual medals. But then I looked up then um, on the Wikipedia page because, you know, it's a great source of information. And there was this one line which was um, about the music contest. And it said, Yosef Suk is the only well-known musician to have competed, winning a silver medal in 1932. Do you think that Avery Brundage was holding a grudge for 20 years because he competed in 1932 in the arts competition? He did. Yes, he did. He wrote an essay, didn't he? That's right. And he got honorable mention. Wow. That equates to what, 12th place? (laughs) Pretty much. (laughs) (laughs) And and maybe they didn't award a gold, you know? funny because they had gold silver and honorable mention he wasn't even good enough to get the bronze (laughs) like avery brundage thwarted at every olympic competition that he participated in and and he could hold the grudge ban because there was the bakery controversy of 1932 so the (laughs) united states olympic committee which was not called that at the time awarded the bread contract to the helms bakery in los angeles who then produced olympic bread Olympic brand bread and use the rings and used, you know, we, the, the bread of champions, you know, before Wheaties, we had the bread of champions and Brundage was furious about this because he did not want the Olympic symbols and names to be used in commercial purposes. He would be very against all the official sponsors that exist now. Wow. So he and Helms had a feud for Decades after, uh, you know, Helms trying to undermine Brundage's real estate company, Brundage going after the bakery. So this was years in the making, all stemmed from who got to make the bread in 32. Wow. And it wasn't just the bread, like commercialism was everywhere at these Olympics. It was way ahead of its time, like a good 50 years ahead of its time in terms of uh, commercialization and with 
Kellogg's, Coca-Cola. There were supermarkets as well, that guerrilla marketing as well. I think I read a story about a tea company which went into the Olympic Village and uh, found the Indian hockey team and had taken pictures of them with their tea, which is, I mean, perfect guerrilla uh, marketing just to get in there. What do Indians love? A good cup of tea. And, you know, there was more guerrilla marketing because 1932 was also the year of the release of Tarzan with our friend Johnny Weissmuller. You know, yeah, yeah, I was thinking about that when I was listening to the last Olympopod. And why don't they re why doesn't Disney remake Tarzan, the live action version, since they've been making live action versions of their cartoons? It's time to make Tarzan and get Michael Phelps because we need another good. He's, he's got time, I think. He has time. Does he have charisma? That, that seems to be beside the point. <laughs> All you need to be. <laughs> I have to say one of our team, people who have we have interviewed, would be a better Tarzan, and that's Jake Dalton, the U.S. gymnast. Oh, he would be a good Tarzan. He would be a very good Tarzan if we want an Olympian as a Tarzan. I also think that that's like, it's, it's more of a Tarzan vibe than the swimming. Because like I, we talked about it in the last Olympopods is that they had to like include swimming in the Tarzan films just to get him out. <laughs> so yeah, gymnastics seems a bit more suitable. On that topic, the 32 Olympics featured the last time they had the club swinging gymnastics competition. Ooh. Until rhythmic gymnastics came back, but men would swing clubs around. I don't know why I'm doing hand gestures for a <laughs> podcast. <laughs> in a <laughs> rhythmic and beautiful display of athletic prowess. But this was men, not women. So yes, an American won the club swinging gymnastics competition, which I'm glad they've eliminated because if I tried it, because now I'm dedicated to trying lots of different sports, I would, as we know, end up in the hospital. (laughs) (laughs) I like that you mentioned Tarzan being released because it seemed at these games that it was also just one big casting call for MGM and the other studios that Olympians, if they look good and they were pretty good at what they were doing, that they were being dragged off to studios here and there and being asked to to take on some roles. And actually a guy we mentioned in an earlier podcast, and I've got a larger story, including him. So I'm going to hold out on it for now, but he could have taken over the role of Tarzan. Cliffhanger. But we're not going to go there yet, because before I want to do that, I want to hear from, uh, first of all, Ruth, if you were to choose one athlete and one story of a particular athlete from these games, who would you choose? Well, I think something that is very relevant and is um, the story of uh, Stanislava Valishevich. Um, or later known as Stella Walsh. Uh, she made her first Olympic appearance representing Poland and she won gold in the 100 metres. Um, and she was she just seems to be an absolute superstar throughout the first half of the 30s. Uh, she scooped up medals in the Europeans and World Women's Games and her speciality, the 100 metres, as well as the 60, um, the 200, the 4 by 100 relay, and also the long jump and discus. Um, she became an American citizen in 1947 and she won her last US title in 1951 at the age of 40. Unfortunately, now she's more widely known for what happened after her death in 1980. She was killed aged 69 during an armed robbery and during the autopsy was discovered she had no uterus and had a Y chromosome. The coroner at the time stated that she was socially, culturally and legally a woman. Nonetheless, because of this, there have been efforts to have her achievements expunged. And I think it is important that we do remember her and her achievements, not least because there is still this horrific ongoing struggle in women's athletics for people who don't fit into this very narrowly defined um often arbitrary legal description of what a woman is. And we've seen this most recently with South Africa's Castor Semenya and India's Duty Chand, both of whom have faced these really quite indignant challenges with such dignity. And I suppose showing themselves as the champions that they are. So I don't know, that, that story for me does kind of, I think it is important to talk about and and to, to keep her achievements and remember the people. Who's got time to argue that her achievements should be expunged from the records. We have a lot of other fish to fry in this world yeah. right now. That is not important. 
It's not. <laughs> well, when you talk about Berlin, come back to that story. There's, there, there's, a, there's, there's an caveat. Extra, there is an extra bit. <laughs> I'm wondering whether I should ask your opinions on it because it is a... It's an incredibly mind-filled topic at the moment with women in sport. And uh, the latest chapter in this is also the recommendation that in rugby, that trans women should not be allowed to play the sport. Like the definition of what gender is in a sports sense, I feel is so incredibly underdeveloped still. And I know it's, a, it's so difficult to to try and figure out what the the right line to take is. But at the moment, it is based on one thing and one thing alone, and that is testosterone, which I think is already proven to be a disaster. So I just wonder if it's worth getting your opinions on it. I just think the testosterone is so arbitrary because, like, you know, it's only in women's sports that we look at these differences as being something wrong. In men's sports, differences are seen as what an absolute triumph of this human body for being different. And, and, you know, we've mentioned Michael Phelps, you know, he has an abnormal body. That's what makes him incredible. That's what makes him a better swimmer than anyone else. So it does seem a punishment. And often, often these are not white women, these who get punished for being different. And a bit like you're saying, who has time for this? You know, these these are incredible women doing incredible things, often having to overcome so much, not just in their sporting careers, but in their private lives and having their private lives brought out by the media and by athletic associations for full view. Um, and yeah, I just think, it, I, I know with the rugby, there's, claims that there'll be injuries if you let trans women compete in women's rugby. Um, I don't know how much evidence there is for this, but there seems all of the arguments against seem to be coming from one sector. And I don't know how representative it is uh, for the people actually competing in the sports themselves. You know, I would love to see men have to go through testosterone testing. Because I would love to compare sports and the men who compete in them and see, I mean, men don't all have the same level of testosterone either. They can't, you know, do some sports, are they lower or some sports, are they higher? You know, does that make a difference? Do men who have different levels of testosterone competing in the same event, does that give somebody an unfair advantage? I I just, I, like you say, Ruth, it just, seems to be the next phase of how we can find a way to discriminate against women and the men don't have to go through the same thing. I think that's what makes it so frustrating. You know, I'm a big fan of mixed gender events. I've talked a lot about the swimming relays, the running relays, making four man bobsled a two and two, you know, just, or having just a weight limit. You could have whatever gender you want in the sled, but here's your weight limit. Um, so that we stop seeing women's sports as easier and that the idea that there has to be this definition of a woman is because of this belief that it's easier to win in women's sports because they're not as hard. You know, the, the men are really competing and the women are just doing the easier, you know, taking the bunny slope. And I think if we get away from that idea this idea of who's a woman, who's not a woman becomes less important. I mean, because most people that I know, most men that I know could not hold a candle to a lot of these women. You know, I don't know about you, but (laughs) no guy that I know can run as fast as any of the women that are on the track right now. You know, here in Connecticut, where I live, there's a huge lawsuit that's going on about high school sports and who's a girl and who's not a girl. And it has to do with girls who are biologically born girls. And I'm very careful about the language I'm using, and I and I probably will get it wrong, losing out on college scholarships because of trans girls beating them in all the competitions. So now there's a money aspect to who's a woman. 
there are so many layers to this that I think really go back to something we were talking about earlier with Brundage and de Couperton, that somehow women should not be these kick-ass athletes and they're not real women if they are. And I just, we've met so many amazing women who are very much women who are, you know, doing the womanliest thing and having babies and still are going out there and absolutely killing it on the field and track. So I just, it makes me sad. It doesn't make me angry. It actually makes me sad that this is such an issue. And Chris, you're now going to have to do like the... No, no. I have a way to save us. I have a segue because let's talk about the amazing woman athlete of 1932, which was Babe Diedrichsen. Yeah. Would be my my person to talk about too. That was my person. have one brain. There you go. Sometimes we do. When we get to the which sport we would take out, we definitely do not have one brain. But talk about, you know, a superstar of the 1932 games. She could have done a Michael Phelps and swept everything, but they didn't let her. But she is still the only track and field athlete to win a medal in jumping, throwing, and running, male or female. Because she qualified for six separate events originally, right? And for some reason, only allowed to enter three, which was not a regulation for a men's events, but uh, she could only pick three. And uh, yeah, I mean, I could talk about her for ages, so please go on. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm not sure if it was an IOC rule or a USOC rule at the time, but they said, no, you got to pick three. And she won two golds and a silver in, let's see. The hurdles and the javelin, she won uh, gold. And high jump. High jump, she got the silver. Yeah, a controversial silver as well. Yeah, could we talk about that for a second? So she and Jean Shiley were tied in the high jump, and they kept going back and forth and kept making the same jump. So they had to have a jump off. And in the jump off, Babe was disqualified not disqualified because she got the silver, but uh, they said, well, you went over the bar head first and that's not allowed. So uh, Jean's going to win. And my beef about that, because then the rule got changed later and we all celebrate Dick Fosbury for coming up with the Fosbury flop in 1968, but we really should be calling it the Didrikson dive because she did it first. But she had been doing it throughout the entire competition, I read, as well. So this was nothing. She, it, was, it didn't come out of nowhere. It wasn't okay to do that anymore. Yeah. It was almost like, you have other medals. Let's share with the other girls. We don't want anyone to be jealous. Might be nice. You know how girls can be. It's all very dismissive. And then yeah. she went on to a professional golfing career. I mean, this woman was unbelievable. Yeah, apparently like a, a multi-sport phenomenon. Uh, nicknamed Babe after Babe Ruth because she was also a kick-ass baseball player as well. And I saw a couple of days ago, I think it was a newsreel, as she was uh, competing in the 80-meter herd. Oh, I was during the javelin, and she was described as being the one-woman track team. <laughs> uh, yeah, which I think was, uh, was awesome, but very, very accurate as well. Being, uh, not disqualified, but being given silver for something she was doing throughout the entire competition is uh, a disaster. Were they just not paying attention before then? <laughs> Did anything else good happen with the hurdles? Oh, you mean the 400 meter hurdles? Indeed. <laughs> ah, all right. Let me get into this because I watched a documentary on this, which I didn't know existed until a couple of days ago. Ladies, have you heard about Ireland's golden hour? No. I'm a little well, frightened. Strap yourself in. So in the space of just one hour, on it was on Monday, the 1st of August in 1932, within the space of an hour, Bob Tisdall and Pat O'Callaghan won two gold medals on the track and field for Ireland. And I really like this story. And incredibly, there was a documentary made in the 80s, just before the, uh, the LA Olympics took place again, where they brought both athletes, Bob Tisdall and Pat O'Callaghan, back to LA to talk about their journey and the gold medals they won. Bob Tisdall was uh, a bit of an all-rounder as well. Didn't really know which sport he was going to pursue, though. He chose the 400-meter hurdles in the end because, as he said, 
I was quite good at the hurdles. I was quite good at the quarter mile. So throw them together and let's see what happens. <laughs> he'd, <laughs> he'd only done three 400 meter hurdle races before going to America. And they were the attempts to qualify. It was born in Ceylon, so Sri Lanka, as we know it now. And he had a pretty interesting job during the depression as well. He was uh, following an Indian Maharaja around Europe, showing him interesting places around Europe, uh, the cultural and natural sites, but decided three months before the Olympics that he was going to pursue this Olympic dream. And he wrote to the, the Irish asking, can he basically get involved in the team somehow? So they brought him over to Dublin. Uh, he decided to try at the 400 meter hurdles. And after a couple of attempts, turned out he was quite good at it. And he got the uh, Olympic qualifying standard. So he and the rest of the Irish team, including Pat O'Callaghan, who we spoke about in the last Olympipod as the uh, hammer thrower, the leading lights of the Irish team that took the boat over to uh, New York, I think originally, and then cross country to LA. Bob says that was an incredibly relaxed man. Let's just say he wasn't too bothered about training. Uh, when he arrived in LA, he realized that he'd been on this incredibly long journey and should relax. That's what his body needed and so he didn't do any training before the actual olympics he just let his body recover from the uh, week at sea and the week on the rails over to la and in his first heat or the quarterfinals it was for the 400 meter hurdles he didn't really know what he was doing only had three races beforehand so he was learning on his way around turned out he was pretty good while he was learning he won his heat won the semi-final as well in the olympic record time and ended up in the 400 meter hurdle final where there were four Olympic champions in this final. So it wasn't just their Mickey Mouse race, which anyone could show up and win. Four previous or eventual Olympic champions were in this race. He started very well, let's just say. He burst into the lead and he could hear over the speakers about halfway round that he was the man in the lead and nobody really knew who he was. So there was a lot of excitement about it. As he approached the final hurdle, he was quoted as saying, At that moment I experienced a strange feeling of loneliness. Everything was strangely quiet. I began to wonder if the rest of the field had fallen over. <laughs> <laughs> they hadn't fallen over, he was just much better than them. And although he hit the final hurdle on the way through, he crossed the finishing line in a world record time, won the gold medal, but because he had hit that final hurdle... He was not credited with getting the record because at the time, if you hit a hurdle on the way around, you did not get the world record. And it was, in fact, the guy who finished in second place, uh, 0.2 seconds behind, who got the record for the meantime. Eventually, they lobbied and had it changed. So right afterwards, he met Pat O'Callaghan, who was in the middle of the hammer throwing competition. Uh, he gave him a pat on the arse and uh, congratulated him. He asked Pat how he was getting on in the hammer. He was saying, not so good. In fact, it was going pretty terribly for O'Callaghan because he had three pairs of shoes with him at the stadium. All of them spiked. So two heavily spiked ones. And then one of them were a pair of football boots. However, the throwing circle was concrete, not grass as he expected. So uh, these spikes were not a good fit for the concrete throwing circle. His first throw was pretty terrible, realized he had to do something quick. So he ran off the track, found the uh, tools room at the stadium, tried to get a saw and saw the uh, spikes off. However, that wasn't working very well. He found a file and then started to file them. That was working, but incredibly slowly. So in between every single throw, where he had about 15 minutes, he was filing his spikes down as much as possible. He said he managed to get two or three off. And so he asked the newly crowned 400-meter hurdle winner if he could help him file his shoes. So that was the first thing he did after winning the Olympics, sat down beside Pat O'Callaghan and filed his spikes off. Uh, there were still two or three spikes left on the shoe, but it was enough for Pato Callahan with his final throw to get into first place and win his second gold medal. It was uh, two goals in the space of an hour. And what I think I'll do is uh, include a song that was in this documentary, which was recorded celebrating it. Powerful. 
take his shoes off. I was going to say, or like find somebody who would give him a pair of shoes. (laughs) He was a big man, maybe. He was a big man. He was a big man. But how did he get to the venue? Like, was he wearing spiked shoes on his way there? Maybe he only had his good shoes and didn't want to use them in the concrete. People dressed up. Maybe he was just wearing a suit. I'm amazed he didn't go barefoot, but then I thought, well, they probably would have found, found a way to disqualify him because you're not wearing the shoes you came in with and you're <laughs> you're going barefoot. So no medal for you. Yeah, I don't know. That's what he did. And I think it's, it just makes for a better story, though, that you know, the two of them there sitting, like having the entire stadium look at them as they file down these shoes. Um, Bob Tisdall said like he felt like he was holding up the Olympics then as the two of them were filing away these shoes. Bob Tisdall ended up being quite the, the hit. He was, as you mentioned, they, they dressed up at the time and he was quite a stylish guy. Uh, he was invited to... Uh, a couple of the big parties. Douglas Fairbanks Jr. held one of the biggest parties in town at the time, and Tisdale was invited to that. And it, he sat beside Amelia Earhart. Was it such an awful meeting that she decided to get onto a plane and never get seen again? Like, was it that awkward an encounter? <laughs> <laughs> it's just, we've, we've all been there. We've all been there. We've all been sat beside a man and just like going, Jesus, like, I'm going to go do a solo uh, air journey. And just disappear off the face of the earth. I don't know. I mean, Bob Tizzle was quite the charmer, apparently. Like, he was uh, renowned for being uh, a very kind and uh, charming man, as well as well-dressed. While Tizzle got invited to that party, Pat O'Callaghan was invited to MGM Studios and was offered to take over Johnny Weissmuller's role as Tarzan. (gasps) Right at the beginning of Weissmuller's reign... Wow. Pat O'Callaghan was brought around and offered the gig, but he declined. It was not for him. He was a man more in tune with the fields of Southwest Ireland and didn't fancy the glitz and glamour of Hollywood. Look, uh, this, this, is only, this is only going to be relevant for, you know, a quarter of our listeners or whatever. But Pat O'Callaghan, he has a big Irish head in him. Like, I'm not sure it would have worked out. I don't, I don't like, it, it, he's a very distinctive big Irish head. Um, I just don't know if Hollywood would have suited him. Certainly not Tarzan. There's no way that that big Irish head could have been Tarzan. I, well, it's based on what we see now, or we have seen. I mean, he could have defined what Tarzan. Are you saying a literal head or, or proverbial? Yes. No, so, so basically... Irish people have big Irish heads in them and you can spot a big Irish head like miles away, miles and miles away. And, you know, like people listening to this who are not Irish will not understand. I will post that picture and everybody Irish who listens to this will understand. He's got a big Irish head in him. I was more troubled by the the, the Tarzan yell with an Irish accent. Mm. He could have been dubbed. It would have been fine. games really want this to be the most advanced games ever staged and they'd invested in 32 Swiss government certified watches costing $6,000 each. Straight a bit of depression but anyway that was considered good value. The electronic timers were used in the men's Olympic trials earlier that year but the IAF decided that the traditional handheld timers would need to be used during the games proper. But something else they weren't a fan of was the starting blocks, which we had seen recently introduced. Um, and as a result, 1932 saw a re-emergence of athletes on the track with trowels rather than, you know, starting the modern way with blocks. And in the men's 100 metres, timekeeping would have been quite important. Uh, retrospectively, it's been known as the Olympics first photo finish. Both Team USA's Eddie Tolan and his teammate Ralph Metcalf recorded a finish time of 10.38 seconds. Initially, Metcalf believed he'd won and Tolan thought the same going up to congratulate his teammate. But after extensive review of the photographs and film footage by seven judges, it was decided that Tolan got his torso marginally over the line before Metcalf. But both were still awarded the world record time 
and Metcalf just had to be satisfied with silver, which he wasn't. And he he grumbled about it until he died. He was he was very much he was very much just of the opinion, which seems fair that both of them should have just been given the gold. It wasn't his the, his only controversy at these games, uh, because I just said the starting box uh, blocks were scrapped. And just after the 200 metre final had concluded, someone observed that Metcalf's starting holes were three to four feet behind where they should have been. Others claimed this was simply an optical illusion and that it was all fine. Uh, he was offered a rerun, but he refused. Eddie Tillen had taken the gold in this event too. Metcalf the bronze and their teammate George Simpson had taken the silver. And he feared that the USA wouldn't be able to repeat a 1-2-3 victory if it had to be done over. But I just like how like, either his starting, he started three or four feet behind everyone else or it was an optical illusion. Well, it, it's amazing how they invested so much money into getting accurate timekeeping. And yet let's not use some starting blocks that make accuracy a little bit better. Let's have everybody just dig their own holes. But also let's not use the expensive timekeeping either. Uh, let's also just go back to what we were going to use before. But at least they did have the film footage and uh, it was the most uh, documented Olympics to that date. You were able immediately after a race to start reviewing who finished first. So that it, it, it did become quite modern, these games, in that regard. Right, right now we come to, come to potentially the most, the most controversial, controversial part of the evening. evening. Alison, Alison, Jill, Jill which, which sport, sport from, from the, the current, current adapted, adapted Tokyo, Tokyo 2020, 2020 program, program are you are going, going to remove and, and which, which sport, sport are you going, or event, event are you, are you going, going to add, add in? in? And this is our first time we've ever had two guests, but you're still only getting one sport that you can kick. Which we is had a conversation about this. Plead your cases then. We did. We, we, we were discussing and, and Jill has very strong opinions. So I, I may defer on this one. Okay. And, and, and hopes that we get asked back. Well, <laughs> maybe. Well, I'm. I may want to come back for season two and the Winter Games because I have opinions on what sports should be in and out of the Winter Games, with with much more um, passion than the Summer Games. I, I can't remember which so it was, but you were talking about the criteria for what should be in and what should be out. Mm-hmm. What I've always said was a sport should be in if the Olympic gold medal is the highest pinnacle of achievement in that sport. So. I would take out huge swaths of sports, tennis, golf, possibly soccer slash football. It's already gone. Oh, it's already gone. Last Olympopods. Which is nice because it didn't exist at 1932 either. They had the tournament. I mean, I would wipe out half the program. So I'm just going to let Jill go with her choice because she feels very strongly. Very strongly. Get rid of rhythmic gymnastics. Oh, absolutely. No problem. Yeah, I was going to mention this when we were talking about clubs. Um, Yeah, I have absolutely no issue with this. It's, look, it's lovely to have, but um, as as like existing in the world, but not existing in the Olympics. Right. Why, Jill? Why do you hate it so much? I don't think it's a sport. I think it is an art. From a little bit of research, Rhythmic was put in because the uh, the argument was that men's gymnastics has uh, six apparatuses. Women's only have four. So we put in rhythmic to make up the difference so that it's a gender equal thing now. But uh, it, it's not like you get any artistic gymnasts who can also do rhythmic. Rhythmic, you have to be extremely bendy, do very... <sighs> Unusual things with your body, I would say, to to contort it into different positions. I don't understand. You can watch a rhythmic gymnastics event. And and my husband and I have done this several times during the pandemic where we just stare at the TV with our mouths mouths open going, how and why? Because what is sporty about bouncing a ball or throwing a ball up in the air and then like turning three times and catching it or letting it drop and then catching it on the bounce? I don't get it. I also the rhythmic gymnasts also seem to be heavily Eastern European, kind of direct line to ballet that you kind of get from rhythmic gymnastics and, and that sort of art form. But when's the last time you saw an an African do well in rhythmic gymnastics? I don't know. I, they can argue with me, but I, I, 
I think it's an art, not a sport, and should not be part of the Olympic program. I'm not sure it goes so strongly as to say it's definitely not a sport because I've already like ostracized myself to so many sports. But so I'm not I'm not right to do that with the rhythm. It, it does take a lot of strength and muscles, but the difference between rhythmic gymnastics and ballet is that you throw a poop or a ball in. And we don't call ballet a sport. And they are just as strong. People people who do the rings, who are ring specialists, I mean is that a sport? Been very good at rings. I mean, I like I would never kick out rings because I love it. But um, I I I don't know if because like going back to our conversations earlier of you know what is a feminine sport, uh, what is women's place in sport? I don't. It's it's a very slippery slope to start saying this sport, which is you know by its very nature very feminine, that because of that it's not a real sport. But I don't know. I don't know. I I am very happy with us kicking it out. No issue there. I just don't want the rhythmic gymnastics uh, people community coming after me, like because they they can they can uh, tie me up with like their ribbons, um, in a very like synchronized way. They can throw balls at me, beat me with clubs. I don't want that in my life. I've got enough going on. Well, they can come on their come on our show and convince us otherwise. I'm be I'm happy to talk to a rhythmic gymnast about their sport. I would also be happy to see male rhythmic gymnasts at the Olympics. Just saying. What are you bringing in? You're kicking out that. What are you taking in? Allison, you have thoughts? Well, my thought is always if we can gender integrate stuff. So I would love to see like well, it's winter, but I want to see four man get switch four man bobsled get switched to two and two or a weight limit and it can be any gender Hmm. i want basketball to be and possibly volleyball to be just one event with both Hmm. but a whole new sport put in we have enough crap that's in there (laughs) we do not need to add more crap yeah okay i mean this is kind of our our podcast we, we do this again. <laughs> <laughs> that's the point allison As in, c- coming on to our turf and telling us are you saying this is a waste of time the stuff that you put in like i am totally with the tug of war people i am all about tug of war i love that just pure grit yanking people into the mud stuff love that as we were talking about this before, I had a couple of options. I, I'd put, there's an event I would slide into one sport, but I think the, if we were adding a whole bunch of sport, or a whole entire new sport, I wouldn't mind seeing orienteering in. It's not a, a camera savvy sport, but you know, maybe they could put on body cams or something and be like, I'm looking for the, the target, but that could also be a gender equal sport. You just have one mixed orienteering event. Okay. If you really press me, I would put um, dog agility in. <laughs> if we have horses, now we if bring we in have dogs. horses, you know, the, the people have to run with the dog and guide them yeah. along. It's just like equestrian. And the more things that involve dogs, I'm with you. Do we like dogs or do we like orienteering? Just be careful who you're offending here. I'm worried in the dog side, if, if you have the agility, then the like, the the more pristine dogs will want to be involved and the people like you know you're going to get the crufts people wanting all type of dog shows included and then you get into a rhythmic gymnastics problem within the dog olympics Olympics world world. i feel like you know you made a very good argument about rhythmic gymnastics and then you're like yes we're going to bring in dogs now (laughs) (laughs) jill Jill made the brilliant (laughs) argument let's let's be fair here that you know uh that was all her. I don't make brilliant arguments. I just throw crap in. So, but like with with um, global warming and the issues with uh, Winter Olympics, um, you know, could we just have summer bobsled, you know, on the wheels, on the uh, going down? You, you could. Next. <laughs> no? I think, I think we're going to have to save that one for this, uh, the winter season, that discussion. Is there any point in the Winter Olympics? Question, Question mark. <gasps> that's, that's, the, the, that's season two on the way. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my heart. I, I, like, 
I'm speaking. I'm spe- uh, speaking to two people from one of the six countries that care about it. So, and I've lived in two of the others, attacking, attacking, attacking it all around the place here. But, but um, no, of no, course, of course. I mean, I mean that, of, course, of course, the Winter Olympics should exist. Just, just not, not yet, yet on Olympipod. Orienteering. I like the idea of orienteering. Yeah, but I was thinking because we've brought in mountain running, that could be in the same location. You could also do a multi-day thing with orienteering and just have a big orienteering tournament for days where they get lost in the woods and they've got to pitch a tent. So, I mean, there is actually precedence to this, though, because like in the early Olympics, there was a lot of like life-saving um, events like that. So, you you know, there, this, this is okay. And what we could do, as I said, is, you know, if it was a multi-day event, you could also have... Um, a dog rescue section so that Alison is happy. Um, no, even if they just let dogs hang out in the stadium, I'd be okay with that. Speaking of dogs, there was an adopted dog in the Olympic Village, the, the unofficial mascot. See, oh. so dogs were oh, destined for this episode. Any more? Any more? Like, what was his name or her name? Yeah, no, no. I think it was Smokey. It was a little black. Terrier. terrier. It's always a terrier. Nice. Okay. Our first unofficial mascot of the game. The Smokey. Smokey was a, a little black terrier, and the men of the village adopted him. He was a stray and just sort of wandered into the village. And I'm because I'm sure there was the lovely Helms bakery bread that they provided <laughs> for him. And arguably the first unofficial mascot. See, long history of dogs with the Olympics. Just <laughs> saying. So, uh, Ruth, you make the final choice. Which one is going in? I think because Alison has come in here and she started criticizing our format. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm going with Jill. <laughs> and I also like how we can, we can, as I said, put it in with our mountain running. So we've got, you know, it's it's all good. And yeah, so we're going to bring in orienteering. I'm not t- not going to lie and say it's definitely staying in until the end of the Olympopods, like, because we can take out. Oh, okay. All yeah. right. Well, that's good to know. But- Hopefully we've been good enough to be asked back. <laughs> maybe, maybe you, Jill. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a show unless I insult people. <laughs> <laughs> There's one more big question we have to ask at the end of each episode it's becoming more and more difficult but if you were to transport yourselves back to 1932 and these games which events or which event each of you would you've competed in and potentially excelled in Mm. well i would have excelled at nothing let's just make that perfectly clear um which would i have wanted to oh i would have wanted to see uh the track and field in the in the coliseum Absolutely. Just to sit in that Coliseum when it was first opened. But to compete in the Coliseum. Oh, that would be amazing. But yeah, I'd be like that, the guy who's, who's lapped all the time. That would have been me. And I'm talking like I would have been lapped in the hundred. I mean, I have <laughs> zero athletic ability. Um, but yeah, anything to do with the track and fields in the Coliseum would have been okay. for me. Jill? Uh, I probably would have swam. I swam when I was a kid. And so swimming would have been good. You had a brand new venue. Although I would have liked to go and see the rowing because I've seen the rowing venue in person. So it would have been interesting to see what that looked like back in the day with the competition. We haven't mentioned the swimming at all, but uh, fair dues to Japan at these games, by the way. And the men in particular winning five of the six events the only non-Japanese winner was Buster Crab, who we mentioned in the previous pod. Another film star. And another Tarzan. Uh, another Tarzan as well. So, and, and, uh, yeah. and, and, and the guy who just like Hollywood needed to change his name. Hollywood needed to come in there and just tell him Buster Crab is not going to cut it. Why don't he change to Buster? I know. Yeah. It's the Crab bit, was... to be honest. <laughs> Buster isn't the issue. Jill, Allison, tell us about Keep the Flame Alive and what you do. Well, we are a podcast for fans of the Olympics and Paralympics. We're like your water cooler buddies. 
So every week we we find somebody who's connected to the games and talk to them. So we'll talk to athletes and learn about sports and how they work. We talk with games makers and people behind the scenes, which I think is some of the most fun stuff we do because there's so many elements of the Olympics that you don't really think about, but the people who put them together work very hard to make them the best they can be. So yeah, we're so many people beyond the athletes and beyond the headline athletes, you know, the sports that don't get enough attention and mm-hmm. these people who work incredibly hard to uh, achieve their medal status or just to compete there. They have such amazing stories that we've gotten a chance to to share, which has been amazing. So yeah, we are out every Thursdays, flamealivepod.com and flamealivepod on social. Our next Olympics is Berlin, 1936. And as we've already had a bit of a sneak peek from this Olympopod's guests, Brundage makes another appearance and they're making an early call and saying he'll be the scumbag of the week. I don't know if that's going to be true. There could be a few other scumbags lurking around Berlin. We'll see. We'll have to see. We'll have to see.